Okay? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and be part of your plan. We thank you for your grace plan, both of salvation and sanctification, and that you use us, you use us who are humble, who want to follow you and submit to you and surrender to you. And we thank you for this privilege because we know you are the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And you even became flesh for our eternal benefit. Father, help us never forget who you are, what you've done, and how you want to use us so much in your grace and love. Please bless this message. Have your spirit guide us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 108. On Sunday, the Spirit gave us a lot to chew on. I'm sure most of you agree. And in a way, it was a review of the beginning of this series, back in last September. But it also gave us a couple new key principles and perspectives that can be very valuable for us to reconcile in our own souls. We started with this response from someone who read last week's blog on June, uh, July 23rd. The peace I have found through obedience is overwhelming. Truly, this last sentence has been on my mind for a while. I am happy not always in my emotions, but even when hurting, I am content. I am discovering his joy, and it's truly amazing. That first statement is quite a statement. The peace I have found through obedience is overwhelming. And all I could think of when I read that was that God's ways are not our ways. They're just not our ways. It's opposite of how we think. And as difficult as it is for us to obey whatever authority is, is legitimately over us, including God, when we do finally surrender, that's also how great the, the peace is. And when we, in other words, when you fit into your role, when you submit to your role and stop kicking against it, it's funny how it's actually enjoyable. And you don't have to be the one in control. In fact, it's more peaceful to not have to be the one in control. So getting peace from obedience or happiness from obedience is against our natural thinking. We fight and kick against obedience like teenagers rebel against authority often, even though the guidelines of their authorities are for their own benefit. So again, it takes humility to accept that instead of kicking against it. You mean your word, Lord, is for my own benefit? That's the truth. Are you willing to accept that fully? Believe that. That's where peace lies. But then take it a step further. How can obedience actually bring you freedom and peace? Like even to try to rationalize that doesn't make sense. But God's ways are not our ways. His ways are far beyond our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So then it takes faith and humility. His ways are far better than our ways. As arrogant children, we, we kick against that, maybe until we're tired enough to give up and surrender. But God's ways actually work. Go figure. It's like he knew the end from the beginning. It's like he knew everything in advance. God's ways actually work. Obedience actually works for our benefit. So talking about obedience to his ways... If we humble ourselves to accept the ways of God, we can experience these wonderful realities as part of our sanctification, being set apart from the world and also set free from it. Again, if we humble ourselves to accept the ways of God, including obedience, we can experience wonderful realities such as God's supernatural peace as part of our sanctification being set apart from the world 
and set free from it. Listen, even though we're in the world and it's crazy sometimes and it wraps us up, we don't have to be a slave to it. We don't have to listen to it. We don't have to listen to the noise. We can choose to obey God's ways and just ignore the screaming of the world, so to speak. How else can we be set apart from the world unless we trust and obey God's ways? How else can we be rescued from the world and the craziness unless we trust and obey his ways? There's no other way. If you stay tethered to the things in this world, that's up to you. But to the degree that you do that, you're not, you're not going to have peace. To the degree that you stay tied to the things in this world, you're not going to have peace. God's saying, let go of that rope. Stop holding on to that false security you're seeking from the world. Whether it's money and possessions or status or even peace in your family. Maybe your children are idols. Or just being in the know, trying to be the best on your block. Whatever your problem is, whatever you are clinging on to for security, call it out as a lie, as a falsehood, and say, I'm going to let go of that rope, and I'm going to go to God's ways, and that's it. On the board in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 in the NIV, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. There we see them tied together again. This is how our God and Savior designed life to work. True life. True life works this way on the board. Following the Trinity. Obeying Jesus Christ and his commands. And then you're going to have peace. But there's no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The true life. So his ways work. To have his grace and peace in abundance is part of God's plan for our sanctification. He wants us to have his grace and peace in abundance. We're the only ones that get in the way. We're the only ones that don't submit. He wants us to obey and enjoy the fruit of that in our souls. The peace and the grace and even the love. We're the ones that get in the way. So humble obedience is a key, part of our sanctification. And Pastor described this person on Sunday as a knocker. What's a knocker? It's another name for a humble person who keeps on seeking God's grace aggressively. Keeps on knocking at the door. Humility aggressively receives God's grace and even pursues it. Not for personal gain, but for the glory of God. But a truly humble person aggressively goes after God. God saying, I, I need you, you know, tugging on his robe, so to speak, like that, that woman did who was sick, right? Just had that faith. She had enough faith that if she just touched his robe, she'd be healed. He wants us to tug on his robe over and over, knock on that door over and over. That's humility. He, he's actually telling us the way. He's actually telling us the secret, if you will, which is to... Go to the throne of grace with confidence, right? I'm gracious to you. All I want you to do is seek me. He's giving us the, the way, and then we don't follow it. But if we do aggressively follow that, we're obeying, we're obeying his commands with that type of aggressive humility. So on the board, Hebrews 4.16, as many of you know, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. There's a picture of aggressive humility. With confidence. Don't draw near, you know, peaked, shy, timid. Draw near with confidence to my throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
So the Lord enjoys a persistent knocker. He loves it because he's the one that told us to do it in the first place. It's not like we're violating, it's not like we're stepping over the line. You know, he said, no, you can only come five times a day. He said, come as often as you want to the well. And that's why he loves it, because that's obedience. Turn in your Bibles again to Luke 11, verse 5. We were here on Sunday, and the more and more I read this passage, the more I see And when you read the passage as a whole, and the context gives you more and more light, he's telling us to be like this guy. He's telling us to be like this guy in prayer towards him. In other words, we can't make him tired. We can't annoy him. Isn't that great? We can't. He never grows tired of us. Luke eleven five. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, He will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Just like this guy was knocking, annoying his friend. But the Lord doesn't get annoyed. Especially when our motivation is right. Knock and it will be opened to you. Eventually. Kind of like the friend didn't open the door right away. Maybe the Lord's testing you. Maybe the Lord's asking you to persist in faith before he answers. But knock and it will be open to you. It's up to God on the timing. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And notice, our Lord is referring to us asking for spiritual things. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's not talking about our little wish list in the world for a Ferrari or, you know, one of those purses that were $4,000. He especially wants us to ask for spiritual things. And that's what we really want, even though we don't believe it sometimes, because that's what gives us the peace and the truth and the life. So our Lord is referring to us asking for spiritual things in a persistent way, like more faith. Like more love. I don't know about you, but I need to ask him every day for those things. You know, and there's times that, you know, you have your good times and your bad times. And um, it's good that he shows you what you don't have. And he just wants you to keep on knocking. That makes him very pleased. And that's part of building our relationship with him, too. It's a personal relationship. And it takes time to build a rapport, not from God's side, but from our side. So he's given us more and more time to keep going back, to keep going back. And he knows when to answer us and when not to answer us. So we keep going back. So we build that rapport and understanding, each of us, individually with God. Not like anybody else. So there's an intimacy and power from following the Spirit that will give us true peace. That's what he's telling us to pray for and ask for. And part of following the Spirit is obedience. So the Lord says, ask, seek, and knock persistently, just like a friend at your door at midnight. It's funny, like I can remember some things in my life where a friend bothered me this much where I just gave in to him. I wasn't doing it because he was my friend. He was such a nag, right? Let me show you can think of a circumstance in your whole life where you said, okay, here. Just take it. You want an extra 20? Here. Just go. 
And that's who the Lord wants us to be in persistence. <laughs> Bill's laughing. You can tell us a story later, Bill. But that should be us at God's door. That God wants us at his door like that, at the throne of grace, knocking over and over and over. So we're talking about humility being aggressive again. And a person, we saw this on Sunday, a person who persistently knocks is a person who is granted grace with the caveat that they're knocking with the right motivation, of course, as in James 4.3. But a person who persistently knocks is a person who is granted grace. God's grace has clearly done all the work in salvation, and he's done all the work in sanctification too. He has. Our role is, again, humility on the board. Our part is to receive his grace. And true humility will receive it aggressively. Our free will and, moreover, our heart, it's always involved. God never violates those things. He's, in fact, seeking for our heart to be with him fully. But our part is to receive his grace, even aggressively. It's by God's grace alone that each of us are saved through faith, yet we have a part in receiving it, and that takes humility. As we well know by now, God does not give grace to the arrogant. He does not give grace to the arrogant. Does God's grace ever change? God's grace is perfect. It's full. It's complete. It's, <laughs> we can't even define it. But it's perfect. We know that. So it's not the one. It's not God's problem. It's not his fault. It's the arrogant person, right? That's saying, no, I don't want to receive your grace. The arrogant one clings to his own ways and refuses to receive the perfect grace gift he's offered, even in salvation. So let's go again and see one of the Lord's quote-unquote difficult commands uh, regarding salvation itself. Go to Luke 13, 22. Luke 13, 22. God gives grace to the humble. And this is, this is the main reason why the majority won't enter the narrow door. Verse 22, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. On the board, we saw on Sunday the word strive in the Greek, agonizeste, literally meaning to agonize. And the word is taken from the Grecian games. In their races and wrestlings and various athletic exercises, they strove or agonized or put forth all their powers to gain the victory. And the Lord says strive to enter through the narrow door. I say it's because arrogance is in your way. And I'm not going to interrupt your free will. Arrogance is in the way. Are you going to get out of your own way? As believers in this local assembly who dogmatically believe we're saved by grace, how could this verse not make you step back and think? I'm sure it has all of you. So why does the Lord give us such challenges if we're saved by grace? Why this type of challenging statement, strive to enter through the narrow door? The fact is, it's there in the scriptures. And we each must reconcile this with the rest of scripture, including being saved by grace. So what does this mean? What is the Lord saying? We know he's not telling us to work for our salvation, right? We know he's not telling us to work for it, earn it. The whole, scripture, whole of Scripture tells us, you know, just it being by grace means it's not by works. So that can't be it. Regarding this verse, I can tell you the Spirit has been putting two things on my heart in particular. 
as this first bothered me and trying to figure this out, but even as recently as this past week, he's been putting two things on my heart regarding this, and I'm just going to share them with you. Regarding the phrase, strive to enter, first of all, it's a big decision. It's a big decision, even to be agonized over, for the unbeliever to accept Christ or not. It's not a whimsical decision. It's not some casual acknowledgement or accepting Jesus as a just-in-case option, along with all the other things that you hold on to in the world. So to me, in my soul, that's one, one thing he's been saying. It's a big decision. It's not some lighthearted mental ascent, might be the best phrase, of Jesus dying for your sins. See, when you grow up in it, when you grow up in it as a child in, in any church, in any whatever denomination, whatever, there's a tendency to be totally familiar with something. This is who I am because I grew up in it, right? It's not this is who I am because I've trusted in Christ to save my life. It's this is who I am. I label myself as a Christian because I grew up in it. Well, how do, how do we know that person's saved? Does that save you? So what's the condition of the heart is the question. So again, regarding strive to enter, it's a big decision even to be agonized over. It's not some casual acknowledgement or accepting Jesus just in case, along with all the other things you hold on to in the world just in case. God looks at the heart. And the other thing that's been coming to my soul is this. The Lord doesn't accept half-heartedness. That's not true faith. By faith, a person makes the big decision to accept Jesus as both their Lord and Savior. And this came out last night when we were at you know, Kennedy Plaza with the homeless people. Because a lot of them believe in Jesus. There's been many a minister there. They, 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 you know, they'll, they'll talk a good game even to get money. Right? I believe in Jesus. You know, uh, God bless you. Can I have a dollar? So we didn't stop there last night. We're not like, okay, that's not good enough. You realize he wants your heart, right? You realize it's a big decision to accept him as your Lord and Savior. It's not like something you were sent to. It's personal. And this is where I think the Spirit's been taking us. This is why I think he's reloading this gospel because there's a lot of people out there that will use his name or think they're saved because they grew up in a certain place and never submitted to Christ as Lord and Savior. Never surrendered. It's a condition of the heart. So again, on the board, you know, why strive to enter? The Lord doesn't accept half-heartedness. That's not true faith. By faith, the person makes the big decision to accept Jesus as both their Lord and Savior. And faith means to trust in Him. And that doesn't truly happen without denying your other options like sin and self. That's what I think he's been really showing us a lot. That saving faith, that trusting in Christ, doesn't really happen while you're holding on to your other options just in case. Because you didn't really turn to him and turn away from your other options like sin and self. So we need to stop trusting in those things to be able to give our heart to him. It's a trust issue. As in Pastor's book on the gospel called The Boat Analogy, which is on the website under publications, again, if you want to revisit it, because this is what came out of our first bunch of lessons in this series. You can't have one foot on land and another foot in the boat. Salvation is accepted when someone jumps into the Lord's boat. Salvation is true when someone jumps into the Lord's boat with two feet. And to do that, you have to leave behind your own solution of safety. Does that make sense? You have to leave behind your own solution of safety, your own security blanket, saving your own life. Because you can't be in his boat otherwise. It's impossible, even physically, at least in that analogy. It's just like your heart can't be in two places, truly. 
So a person cannot be on the fence and be saved. And this is something we need to remember when witnessing to others. We need to let people know it's not some watered-down, casual, academic decision. I hope you're seeing that differentiation in this series. It's, to me, it's slowly coming about. You know, it's taken time to see some of it and to see a little more of it and to see a little more of it. And it takes a lot of prayer and even agonizing in prayer. You know, it's done it for me. I've been like, Lord, what do you mean? Show me this. Am I in this boat? You know, is this something I need to think about? And this is a process that I think he wants us all to go through. But we need to let people know that it's not a watered-down, casual, academic decision. Yes, Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago on the cross for my sins. Are you just assenting to that fact just in case? Or do you really believe it? Talk to me. I mean, and you have people that if you ask them to say what they believe, they can't explain it. That's what they know because that's how they grew up. I don't know about you, but I'm not too comfortable with that for their sake. And we need to let them know that it's a heart decision. And Jesus doesn't accept half-heartedness. So regarding giving the gospel, it's letting people know the Lord wants your heart. This is a big decision, just so you know. He wants you to turn away from your own options to save yourself, for example, and turn to Him alone as your Savior. This is a type of thing that we got the chance to say last night to some of the homeless people. I mean, the Lord wants your heart. It's, it's, not, it's not a game. It's not a way to get a buck. He wants your heart. He wants you to surrender to him, that you need him. This is a big decision. He wants you to turn away from your own options and turn to him alone as your Savior. A person cannot say they believe in Jesus, but remain trusting in their own goodness, for example, to earn God's acceptance when the time comes. There's many a people, including myself for years, that said they believed in Jesus, but clung to their own goodness for God's acceptance or their own attempts at goodness. And that person I don't think is saved. I don't think they dropped their means of salvation for his. If one is still clinging to that possibility, and that's the word, possibility, then he's not jumped into the Lord's boat. He's not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. That's why this is an agonizing decision, if you will. It takes a personal reconciling of what's going on in your own motivation, in your own heart, between you and him alone. And sometimes it might take years, but that's okay. As we've seen, as long as you keep knocking, the Lord's not going to, not listen and he's going to get you there but there are people that might even use the Lord's name but have not trusted in him as their sole means of salvation it reminds me of the crowds that followed Jesus that could legitimately say you preached in my own streets as we're going to read as we continue on in this passage you preached in my streets don't you remember us we rubbed elbows with you. Don't you remember us? We didn't believe in you, but we liked the stuff you were doing and that you gave us bread. So those crowds that were following the Lord, what did he, what did he do to them? He pushed them away. He didn't accept their half-hearted faith, did he? He pushed the crowds away over and over. He didn't want them... Listen very carefully to this, because this has to do with telling someone they're eternally secure when you don't even know what their own heart is. He didn't want them to be deceived into thinking things were okay the way they were with them as pseudo-followers. He didn't want the crowds to think it was okay to rub elbows with him in a half-hearted way and think they're saved. What could be worse than deceiving someone into thinking they're saved? 
right? And that's why I don't think it's our job to say, you're saved. You're not. You're saved. Someone says they believe in the Lord. Awesome. Follow him. Let's go. Who are we to tell them they're saved? Who are we to know what their heart is thinking and why they're saying they're saved? Preach the gospel like they did in the book of Acts. Throw the water out there and tell them, follow, if you want to follow. That's how the apostles did it. So we have to be on guard, not to be um, the final judge and jury, I guess. The Lord pushed away the crowds. He didn't want them to be deceived into thinking things were okay the way they were with them as pseudo-followers. Each man must make his own decision, a real decision, for or against Christ, to jump in his boat or to stay with their own options. Holding on to other possibilities just in case, that's called hedging your bets. That is not receiving the grace that God paid a heavy price for. So grace is perfect. Grace is complete. Grace is a gift. But you are rejecting that grace gift if you're hanging on to your other possibilities. You did not receive the Lord in your heart, as Romans 10 said. We had another woman last night we met. She said she was a minister. She was an older lady. And she started quoting scripture to us. And she was out there, you know, with the homeless people, I think, quite often. And she quoted Romans 10, 9 through 10. With the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, right? And how much has that been on our plate to see what saving faith really is all about? Again, the Lord doesn't accept half-heartedness. Saving faith is a heart issue. And this is why if a person is born in a church or born in a certain denomination, it doesn't mean they're saved. If a person is a member of a church, or even a deacon or a pastor, who knows? It doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. It's a personal heart decision between each man and God. This even came up in India where there are a lot of children of pastors out there. Okay, and the children grow up in the ministry, not just in a, in a church, right? They grow up in the ministry. And God only knows if each and every child made their own decision to surrender to Christ or if they are just going along with the flow, going along with the show, enjoying the music, enjoying being the pastor's son, enjoying the attention. God only knows at what age each boy or girl in that situation ends up personally trusting in Christ in their own heart. So you can never assume anybody is saved. I'm not saying going around judging them, okay, saying you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But don't make the mistake of assuming people are saved. Have a conversation about the gospel. Have a conversation about all we've been learning. It'll come out. You've been learning. You've been faithful. The Spirit will bring it out. But these are issues about true salvation on the board. It's between each person and God. And it's a matter of the heart surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Anything less than that is a rejection of His grace. Again, His grace is perfect. His grace is complete. His grace did all the work to provide a free gift. It's us that don't receive it. It's us, it's us that, that scoff at it as a pretty good gift. I'll take that just in case on the side. It's people that do that that aren't truly saved. It's between each person and God, and it's a matter of the heart surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Anything less than that is a rejection of His grace offering. So as Jesus was saying to the person who asked the original question, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? What Jesus was saying to this person is the same thing he's been saying to all of us at some point in this series. First, make sure you're saved. Make sure you understand the fullness of the gospel and that it comes at a cost. And you might even have to agonize over it between you and the Lord and drop your own plan 
of salvation. Notice in this passage, the Lord asks about people, I'm sorry, the person asked the Lord about people in general. The Lord responded to him with a command for him. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. The Spirit also asked us this on Sunday. Is it any less gracious of him by asking or by him asking that you let go of the self-life? Is it any less gracious of God by him asking that we let go of the self-life? Does that take away from his grace in any way? Or is he saying that's the true way to accept the gift? Is that some kind of infraction on God's grace? A lot of, you know, biblical people might say so. But scripture is clear that that's the way to receive God's grace. In humility, aggressively, we receive it. We say, thank you. You've done it all. That's how I'm going to believe. That's what I'm going to believe. You've done it all. So therefore, I have to just go with both arms and grab it. Take it as you want me to. Not hold on to it with a string. (laughs) Drag it along behind you just in case you need it. Scripture is clear that that's the way to receive God's grace. Dropping your self-life, your own plans, even at salvation. How can we truly receive his freedom and his salvation when we refuse to drop our own ways and ideas about saving ourselves, saving our own lives? When a person holds on to his own life, he is indirectly holding on to his own plans for salvation. He is indirectly trying to save himself. We've seen this many times, Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Could this mean he's saving his own life? His own way of salvation even? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever stops thinking he can save himself, for example. Whoever stops thinking he's good enough to save himself. Whoever stops thinking that sin isn't an issue. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a slave to sin. I'm going to have the best of everything. There's a, uh, something missing in the heart if someone lives that way with that kind of thinking. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's why dropping the self-life is required by our Lord to receive his way of salvation. It's one or the other. Either keep on trying to save yourself or turn to the Lord in humility, surrendering to his person as Savior. So what also came out on Sunday is this, this counting the cost is not to say that you have to perform any of the good work of salvation in yourself. But you absolutely must understand that to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up your own life. The key word is willing. God looks at the heart. Remember willingly humble versus willful pride in James 4, 3, whatever it is? Willingly humble. The will, the heart, these things are all intimately woven together in our soul somehow. Intimately related. But counting the cost is not to say that you have to perform any good work for salvation in yourself, by yourself. But you absolutely must understand that to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up your own life. You must be willing to give up your own plan for salvation. The Lord was saying this is fundamental to the gospel. And this is why he kept pushing people away, not accepting half-hearted faith. So again, as we heard on Sunday regarding true salvation, Jesus was saying, and still is, that I am the Savior. 
and I'm a real person, and I'm asking you to follow me. And you cannot serve two gods, so you must give up the one for the other. That's the cost here. That's the cost that you should count, even agonizingly between you and me alone, if you need to. It's Jesus himself that said these things. Count the cost. Strive to enter. Revealing the fact that a real decision must be made. A real decision must be made. Man is called to the carpet to choose one or the other. And again, it's between each person and God. It's a matter of the heart surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And anything less than that is a rejection of his grace offering. So look again at Luke 13, 24. You're still there? Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The decision to trust in Christ is not just an add-on to one's life. It's turning to him for a new life, isn't it? Think about it. It's, it's getting a brand new life, not a fixed up one. So it can't just be an add-on. It has to be a change, a swap, the old for the new life. It can't be both. A person either turns to him in humility or they don't. There's no halfway hanging on the fence just in case I'm going to claim the name of Jesus if I need to. Sunday we saw a couple other perspectives on this. One from Kenneth West's expanded translation of Luke 13, 24. He translates it from the Greek, be endeavoring with a strenuous zeal to enter through the narrow door. And we saw another perspective from J. Vernon McGee who said Jesus made it abundantly clear that it would cost to follow him. That we in our sophisticated and soft affluency think otherwise is heresy. He is saying to this man, make sure you are saved. We spent the first 20 parts of this gospel series contemplating Jesus' own words about his gospel. After all, it's his gospel, right? Let's go to what he said. And while some of the things are difficult to understand or reconcile in our own souls, they're necessary. They're there for a reason. And I think God is bringing us around to the big picture, to the full picture, to understand what these things mean and how God looks at the heart. We're being reminded of the whole truth of the matter of the gospel. And while salvation is truly by grace, through faith, each of us must calculate the cost of what it means to follow the Lord, as Jesus said in Luke 14, 28. We must calculate the cost. We must examine our own heart. Simply put, as was said on Sunday, man is called to the carpet to make a decision. You see how different that is than throwing out a verse and having someone, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Who knows what their heart is saying when they say that? Is it I believe in Jesus because I grew up that way? Is it I believe in Jesus because I want to fit in? Why? We can't, we can't know. But you see, when you look at it like man is being called to the carpet to make a decision, it's yes or no. It's your way or his way. It's not coupling them all together in a big Santa Claus sack carrying them all around with you just in case the Lord is not that kind of Lord he's Lord he's Lord God Almighty he is called man is called to make a decision for one or the other again on the board Matthew 16 25 whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it it's like, do you want to save your own life or do you want to be saved by Christ? You have to make a choice. 
It can't be both. A person is not receiving God's grace if he's holding on to the self-life. Either your hands are holding on to your own rope to save yourself, or you have to let go and grab onto the Lord's anchor to be saved. Your hands can't hold both and be saved. Back to the boat analogy. As the floodwaters rise and you're sitting on the roof of your house, your two feet can only be on your rooftop or in the Lord's boat. Try putting one on each, just in case. Good luck. Can't work, right? It's impossible to be saved that way. It's only when someone chooses in humility to jump away from their solutions and jump into the Lord's arms 100%. That's what saving faith looks like. And so the Lord said in Luke 13, 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so some people will hold on to the self-life for years. That's just a fact. Even some people in churches will hold on to the self-life for years. Many so-called Christians have never surrendered in faith to Christ. They like the idea of being part of a religion or having a just-in-case option in their back pocket. But Jesus won't accept being in anyone's back pocket. He's the Lord. He won't accept being someone's second option or backup plan. But the person who keeps knocking will find the truth if they ask with the right motivation. And maybe they're not there yet, but the Lord says keep knocking, right? And this even, if you remember, we, we talked about earlier in the series the different phases of conversion. And we talked about someone who was totally unwilling, just not, not listening. And then we talked about the seeker, the one who might come to church, the one who might read their Bible, the one who is in, in the investigation stage, but they haven't surrendered to Christ yet. There's a lot of people out there like that, even in churches, that haven't surrendered yet. And that's okay. They're not there yet. But the Lord says if they keep knocking, if they keep seeking, they will find. So, back to persistence for us as believers even, which is what we started with regarding aggressive humility. A person who knocks is a person who is granted grace. With the caveat they're knocking with the right motivation, of course. However, as the Lord spoke in absolutes regarding salvation, some may knock too late in our passage in Luke 13. Look how Jesus finishes the parable in verse 25 again. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Remember that? And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. But the reason for the weeping and gnashing of teeth, people are going to realize that they just, in arrogance, refused to surrender to Christ. They heard his name, they knew him, they thought they did, but they stubbornly refused to surrender to Christ for salvation. And that's why their conscience is going to bother them for all eternity. So that, if that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what will to share the Great Commission, to share the true gospel, the full gospel, and to say, you know, what are you doing? What's your heart like on the matter? Life is short, and it's a big decision 
that God is asking you to make one way or the other. We also saw on Sunday, Jesus is also revealed as a knocker in the Bible, in Revelation 3.20. It says, Behold, I, Jesus Christ, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And we saw what Trench had to say on Revelation 3.20. Pretty interesting visual. Every man is lord of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates to it. He has the mournful prerogative and privilege of refusing to open. But if he refuses, he is blindly at strife with his own blessedness. A miserable conqueror. But every man is lord of the house of his own heart. And because of that, only God is the one that can change a man's heart. We're just seed planters. We're just watering the seeds. Only God can change a man's heart. We must never forget that as evangelists, as obeying the Great Commission. Our job is not to change a man's heart. It's impossible. He's got the key to his own gate, and he has the right and the privilege to not open it if he doesn't want to. But you know what? God's the only one powerful enough to reach that type of person, that arrogant type of person like Saul of Tarsus. He's the only one able. And so we rely on him as we go out and obey the Great Commission. And as we obey the Great Commission, what are we going to get from that? That we saw in the beginning of our lesson? Peace. Peace, right? Obedience gives peace. As we obey the Great Commission... You know, the more and more I get out there and some of you in the church have come out with me, you know, handing out tracts and spreading the gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm getting more and more peace that I'm fulfilling what he wants me to do. And there's nothing really like that in the world, but it comes from obedience. We have to remember, too, that it's the Father that draws a man to Christ. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that's where we come in just as a vessel, just as someone going about place to place, filling in some seed in the soil, and let the Father draw that man to Christ. So, as we close, this emphasis on persistence is to remind us all that sanctification comes with humility. Not, not just salvation comes with humility, and that's surrendering to Christ, but even after salvation, sanctification comes with humility. And humility is aggressive towards God's grace. He loves it. He tells us to bother him and knock and knock and knock and knock. He loves it. Humility is aggressive towards God's grace. And God wants spiritual persistence in us. So if you feel like you're not going anywhere, if you feel like you've hit a plateau spiritually, which we all do from time to time, every single one of us. If that's what you're feeling right now, try obeying him more. Just try obeying him more. Obey his commands, obey the Great Commission, obey your pastor, obey God's authorities in your life and see what kind of peace you get and see what God teaches you because you're actually doing the word of God. That's how we really learn, I believe. That's what he's been telling us over and over. And peace comes from obedience. So no matter what, keep knocking. No matter how you feel right now or how stagnant you think you are spiritually or you're lacking faith, keep knocking. Keep praying. And don't ever quit on God because he can't fail you. He can't. If your humility keeps chasing him, he cannot say no, just like the man who had to open the door to his friend. So God promises to answer the knocking because he's a good, merciful father. And we never forget that. He's not going to give you a scorpion, right, instead of a fish. So with that said, the Spirit's taking us all the way back to our working framework in this series. Uh, we saw on Sunday again regarding experiential sanctification 
His perspective, his gospel, is what becomes our sanctification. Living in the gospel reality each and every day, that becomes our sanctification. Sharing the gospel with others, that becomes our sanctification. That living, that process of living it out is what sanctifies us. Not becoming a scholar, not becoming a memorizing half the Bible. It's living out what you know that sanctifies you because you're doing it by grace through faith in humility. Back to the statement, knowing is not living, right? On the board. Only when we live in the gospel and in the grace the Lord gives, only then do we learn and experience true sanctification. Isn't that what we're trying? Isn't that what we want to experience the sanctification? To do that, you've got to live it. You can't be on a couch all your spare time thinking God's going to sanctify you because you can't experience sanctification unless you live it. That's what God's been telling us over and over, right? Only when we live in the gospel and in the grace the Lord gives, only then do we learn and experience true sanctification, not just an academic version of it. May it never be. And one key sign is that we're being sanctified in love. The very foundation of our spiritual life is progressively grounded in love. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And I love the word progressively in this point too because it is progressive, isn't it? I mean, there's times that I don't, uh, grasp the love of God in my life that I wonder where I'm at and I'm, I'm praying about that kind of a thing but sanctification is progressive and he has to take us through certain things he's pulling us toward him more and more he's not answering our prayers sometimes so that we come at him harder so that we develop through this relationship through this process a real learning an experience of sanctification and an experience of his love. And we know the Bible says there's no sanctification in the absence of love. It's really not possible. That's where God's taking us, right? Remember? Pastor said this months ago. God's taking us to love. He's not in a rush. You don't have to be in a rush. You just got to keep knocking. Keep seeking. Be persistent. He'll take us there. He does the taking. He does the completing of the work, right? What's our part? Humility. Aggressive humility. Approaching the throne of grace with confidence. Knocking, knocking, knocking. That's our part. He knows we're just dust. He knows. So just keep knocking. And he will eventually get us to this place called love that will fulfill our wildest dreams, honestly, uh, to have that thing, as the person that emailed in about the blog said, to have that thing, that peace, and that happiness in any situation. That's where he wants to take us. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father... Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your undying love. We thank you that you don't get annoyed with us, but you even tell us to knock, even tell us to persist, because you're a good, good Father. And we thank you, that's who you are. We praise your name, because that's who you are. We thank you for being perfect and holy and righteous and merciful. Father, we ask that you help us take these truths about salvation and sanctification out to the world as you commanded us. Help us reach those that are lost and need the good news and need to jump in the boat to receive the Lord's grace gift. We ask that you bless us as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen.